Hello and welcome to the HRD Live podcast and to our mini-series on diversity, equity and inclusion. Today's guest is Kim Crowder, founder and CEO of Kim Crowder Consulting. Kim is one of the United States' leading anti-racism, diversity, inclusion and equity speakers, coaches, trainers and consultants. Kim has previously been featured for her expertise by the New York Times, Business Insider, CBS, NBC, Fox, CNN and other publications. Kim and her team work across industries serving US and international markets, from retailers to insurers to governmental agencies and the social sector. In this episode, we'll be talking about achieving anti-racism by developing cultural fluency and the structural changes to help combat abusive work environments. Kim, welcome to the podcast and thank you for joining us to discuss such an important topic. Firstly, why do you think it's so important for organisations to be absolutely intentional about anti-racism? Yeah, I would say that one, uh, because people are in your organization. I mean, really, that's just, you know, the basis of it. Uh, my team is really passionate about humanizing the workplace, about seeing people in the workplace being treated with dignity and with respect, specifically leaders understanding their role in that, but also providing those leaders who are from historically ignored backgrounds support as they navigate that themselves. So um, anti-racism is extremely powerful. I have experienced racism in the workplace, coupled up with sexism being a Black woman. And I can tell you, it is not only emotionally damaging, you question yourself professionally. uh, And so we want to see organizations do better. But also if if organizations don't want to see those high turnover rates, and don't want to stifle the ability for their team members to bring their ideas forward, uh, this is the way to do it. Absolutely. And I suppose when it comes to business leaders thinking about the future of work, why is embracing equity within the workplace really the only path forward for the future of work? Yeah, I love that. You, uh, I actually say that often. I say equity is the future of work. Equity is the future of leadership. I also say anything else is tired and boring. And so (laughs) the reason why it is uh, imperative for leaders to understand it is, one, when we look at Gen Z, which is the next generation that's coming into the workplace, a couple things about Gen Z that we know is that their expectations are higher than past generations, particularly around equity in the workplace, whether that be pay equity, where we are seeing that Gen Zs are not applying to jobs that do not have salary requirements. Uh, We also know that Gen Zs are the most themselves, they have the most diverse identities of any incoming working uh, group. Also, millennials themselves are pushing back as well. You know, millennials have had this interesting shift where they came into the workplace following Gen X and had that same, those same expectations when they walked into the workplace but over time, we see millennials have shifted and they, they themselves are asking for equity. They're sort of adapting that now, especially uh, after the time period where many of us shifted how we thought about work. And that was during the pandemic. And so really, this is about organizations. One, they're organizations who want to have a strong moral compass, which is exciting, right? These organizations who have decided this is who we are, we actually want to live our core values We may not always know how we need support in doing that. And then also to understand that the market, the employment market is shifting. And so 
if your organization is going to stay relevant, it has to be so. And if you choose not to, then that happens, you know, then, you know, you get the flip side of that. And one of the things we are seeing more than ever is that people feel extremely empowered to be vocal about their workplaces, right? And we also know that, you know, people are documenting this. So if retaliation happens, they have that as part of to say, hey, you know, I spoke out and here's what happened to me. We're seeing, we saw that with Amazon, uh, the workers in Staten Island, as they were galvanizing and creating a union that's here in the U.S., uh, we see a ton of that happen in the U.K. around unions and <laughs> strikes, right? You show up one day and maybe the trains aren't running. Uh, but also on the flip side, social media is such a powerful tool. And people are using social media, whether that be Indeed.com, where people are saying, hey, this is the workplace. Here's the environment in that workplace. There's also uh, a platform specifically for those who have been racialized. So for Black and Brown team members specifically to go and share their their experiences in a workplace. And so as leadership, as organizations are thinking about their workplace culture, but not just culture at that service level, but really uh, looking at their processes and systems, people are are pushing back and people understand what real equity looks like. So it's no longer sort of, uh, you know, like being able to bamboozle people. People are going, no, no, I know exactly what that looks like. I just Googled you all before this interview and your leadership looks the same, right? People are pushing back and asking strong questions in interviews. And if organizations aren't ready to move that forward, they are going to be left behind. And actually, for me, I think that's a great thing. Absolutely. And we'll we'll come on more later on in the podcast to, you know, really what HR leaders can do to to develop those skills and, and the cultural fluency, cultural competency skills they need to develop there. But just before we come on to that, why is it also important that we begin to describe workplaces that fail in some of these areas as abusive rather than toxic? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I created a, a LinkedIn post. I don't know how long ago it's been, but I one of the things that I said was that I would love to see us move away from this language of toxic workplaces. We, you know, we hear that so commonly, right? We use that term toxic so commonly instead of calling it abusive, which is what it is. And the reason why I think that is so important is because one, when we use the language abusive, that feels very specific. It also feels like an emergency. Toxic sort of feels like it's this thing in the air, Nobody's really responsible for it. It's just how it is. And so when we talk about abuse, you have to name an abuser. You have to name the behaviors and the, uh, you know, your experiences as abusive. And you can be very specific about it. And the reason why that's so important in workplaces is because what we know is that these behaviors show up in specific ways, in specific workplaces. So I remember we were working with uh, working with a partner at one time and we were hearing things back about the workplace environment and burnout, like just absolute burnout. And when we think about abuse, it is overuse, isn't it? Abuse is overuse. And so overusing team members to the point where team members were going, I can't, I'm, I, you know, I can't be with my family. I cannot serve our audiences and our customers in the ways that we want to. I cannot make connections with my team members so that we are communicating the best ways to move the organization forward, to move the role forward. So all of this plays a role in every bit of it. It's not just this sort of 
um, individualistic thing, it really does have a rippling impact on the organization. And so I really believe the more that we name things as they are, the one, it gives employees the power to do something about it, but it also forces leaders to take notice. Absolutely. Um, fantastic. So just sort of to, to move on then to really developing some of these cultural competency skills. I mean, firstly, w- what is cultural competency and why is it such an important part, uh, again, of tackling well, or putting into place an anti-racism strategy? That That is a really great question. We don't talk about cultural competency enough in the workplaces. I actually want to talk about two definitions. So let's talk about the first one, cultural competency. And short and sweet, what that is, is it is the ability to see and understand and value someone else's cultural experiences, cultural perspectives, and to be able to adapt to that, to be willing to shift to that. It is different from assimilation in the ways that we automatically ask folks to come into the workplace and sort of change to fit that workplace. It is as a leader being able to shift your behavior, your approach based on that. And then that next definition I mentioned is cultural humility. And they have to go together because what cultural humility does is say, I don't know everything. I'm okay with knowing everything. And I'm also okay with not assuming that the way I do things is the only right way to do it. And if we can find humility, it guides us into cultural competency, but the two have to work together. And so that is, uh, it is extremely powerful. I mean, can you imagine, I would have loved going into a workplace where in my contributions in a workplace that uh, people didn't use terminology angry just as a way to, you know, if I showed any emotion or if I was passionate about something or that if I disagreed, it was automatically, can we, how do we call that person angry as a black woman? Like how, how can we label her as angry instead of, you know what, culturally, maybe the communication style is different. Hmm. It's more direct than what we're used to, you know? And so instead of um, labeling people, how can we open up a little bit? And I'm not talking about taking abuse. I'm not talking about people who are, you know, rude or, or, you know, being disruptive, but I am talking about the baseline of who people are as human beings and how do we shift from assuming that the way we do things is the only right way so that as leaders, we can uh, expand the ability for our team members to, to not only be comfortable in the workplace, to stick around, to feel supported, um, and also to provide input in that workplace in a, in a way that they can feel um, fully appreciated and also uh, fully seen. And so for HR leaders, for business leaders in general, to begin improving in that area of cultural competency and cultural humility, what training and development or what ways are there for, the, for them to improve that that particular sort of skill set? Yeah, I would say there's a few ways that that can happen. We do something, uh, we're licensed, certified to do the uh, IDI assessment. And that is, that gives you a baseline on where you are in cultural competency. It's not a good or bad, like it's not laid out that way, but it does say, hey, here's where we are on this spectrum. And then can we think about what's next based on this information? And so we typically walk through that. And then based on that information, whether it be a group or individual, we take that back and we may do some type of learning and development. Uh, And in our learning and development sessions, we 
they're quite intense in a really great way. People love them. People enjoy them. Uh, in those conversations, we are helping people understand some historical context and then also how that applies to their workplace and really using data to help them understand the behaviors that they need to uh, embody in order to change some things. Uh, also, in between that, well, we, they, you know, they have some sort of learning, uh, continued learning that they connect with. And the reason why that's important is because this is all about self-reflection. The ability to be comfortable with um, critiquing maybe your viewpoints and your thoughts and also celebrating areas of growth uh, and things that you've been able to hone in yourself. And then for those who prefer it, uh, we we also do some coaching around this, uh, around leaders really understanding this. And we love that because then it can be more customized and personalized for a particular person to really lay out a plan for them and not, again, to talk about it beyond behavior. And what are some things systemically, are there some policies that just don't work in order to create uh, more equity in the workplace? Are there uh, some areas around practices, maybe your promotions practices or the ways that people get assigned projects that could expand that currently don't work? Because if your outcomes are the same, then your process needs to change, right? If your processes are, you know, are the same and are producing those outcomes, then your systems need to change the ways that you are, are building. What's the foundation? And so uh, we love doing this because it provides us a real opportunity, not only to humanize the folks behind the work, but also allows them a bit of a cocoon to be able to work through those issues in ways that could be disruptive if they were doing it in front of other people. That doesn't mean it won't always be messy. It doesn't mean that um, they may not make mistakes, but it does provide a bit of space for them to learn and test and grow. Absolutely. And thinking about more of that long term and, and thinking about this as an ongoing exercise, because once you sort of almost gone through some of those processes that are here right now or gone through that initial training, as you say, we really want these organizations to sort of be able to go through this process in an ongoing way. So what are some of those structural changes to make sure that this development is something that, that continues into the long term rather than being a tick box exercise that is then just left to one side? Yeah, I love that. The only way to do this long term is by measuring something. What are the measurements? And are those measurements actually measurements that produce more beneficial outcomes, right? For your team members, for the organization. Are those, you know, so that what you're putting in place, you know whether or not it's working. And then you can get a sense of maybe why it's not. What are some areas that we may be missing that could just be tweaked just a little bit to improve? And when it comes to some of those areas that, that are missing, what are some of the most common pitfalls that lead to anti-racism initiatives failing? And maybe how can they be combated as well? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, one of the things that we see is the makeup of the leadership. If we're honest, when we go on most websites, mm. who's mostly in leadership? Typically white men. And if it isn't white men, then it's white women. And so, and, and there is a, a beautiful chart that we actually show often in that uh, men of color and women of color move into that C-suite at the lowest rates. Not only that, but also the 
cultural competency of those groups could be lacking no matter what their background is, right? Where they themselves don't have those skill sets. And that is a major pitfall because these are the folks who are making major decisions for the organization. And they could sit in any part of the organization. It could be HR leaders. The assumption is that because people are in human resources, that they have cultural competency is just untrue, right? They're good with people or whatever that is. It could be, or it could be not, or it could be that they're very nice, but they still may not understand the nuances of some of the experiences that folks unlike them experience in the workplace. And that's even true for me as a black woman. I am cis, I am heterosexual. I do not have a disability. And so even I, I, I am not, uh, I do not, you know, I do not, neurodiversity does not impact me. And so for a woman who is both, someone who is both black and a woman, my assumption cannot be that I understand somebody else's experience based on other identities, right? And so that is one of the things that we really like to bring forward within organizations and then give them tools on, okay, based on this, what is your role? Where do you fit in? in order to help expand this within the workplace. Absolutely. And lastly, it's something we touched on earlier, but I think it's it's worth really reiterating and going over again. What does the future hold for organizations that fail to develop cultural competency or fail to build a healthy anti-racism practice? Yeah. I think we are going to see more and more that employees are specific, and that they are selective about where they're willing to work, about the environments they're willing to work in. That may mean that they are not applying for roles, that organizations are not getting top talent because people talk mm-hmm. it, and, 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 you know, right, and build reputations and people are seeking out conversations around this. It'll also show up, it could show up in their output You know, we've watched some organizations make major mistakes in the market because they didn't have the internal voices and understanding about a particular group where that impacts um, how it lands in the general public and people push back tremendously, right? We've seen that happen on social media. And so the more that I, the more I believe that Uh, employees feel empowered, which is a really great thing, the more accountability is going to be attached to that. And so that can look, again, a myriad of different ways. But I do know that employees, for employees, it does matter across the board. Uh, You know, I know that the the way that this shows up based on region or geography or country, it is different. But what I do know is that the world is becoming more global. Everyone has, you know, you are on LinkedIn and you have connections all over the world and we're talking to each other and we're talking about not only our experiences, but our expectations. And even though something may be happening in the U.S., it doesn't mean that people in the U.K. or people in Asia aren't hearing about it and starting, maybe we're not at the same point, but starting to push that forward because they now know that that opportunity, that uh, those uh, expectations that they can now hold on to those. And so I really do feel strongly that the more we become global, the more conversations we're having, uh, the more selective and the more powerful 
employees are in making the decisions about where they want to work and how they want to work. And so for workplaces who are taking into that into account now, those are the workplaces that are going to survive. For those workplaces that are bent on staying stagnant, you may get a story written on you or you may see that stuff pop up um, on social media. And unfortunately, you just will not be able to make that connection both internally with team members and audiences externally. Absolutely. Kim, thank you so much again for taking the time to join us on the HRD Live podcast. And it's been a pleasure to have you on board. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Benjamin. You've been listening to the HRD Live podcast. Don't forget to look at hrdconnect.com for much more industry-defining content, including thought leadership, case studies, and exclusive Q&As. To stay up to date with our latest HRD Live episodes, remember to hit subscribe, and thank you for listening.